And so today, we're going to be talking about the question of God's existence, the question of does God exist? Now, this question is actually a relatively new question in terms of history. It wasn't until around the 18th century that people began to question if God or a God existed. Before that, um, many people believed that there were gods or powers that be that would uh, cause the things in the world to happen. And it was around the, the beginning of the 18th century that a philosophical and intellectual movement started called the Enlightenment. So I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. History, theology, apologetics, we got it all here tonight. Now, the Enlightenment was a period that began and it emphasized philosophical and intellectual pursuits. The Enlightenment placed a large emphasis on reason and logic for defining what is happening in the world. And so science also became a huge, um, came into more prominence during the Enlightenment because it provided empirical data that told us how things worked or why they worked. And many leaders in the Enlightenment saw science as a tool to overthrow uh, traditional or religious authorities because the church and the religious um, world was very like domineering and harsh. And um, so they wanted to remove some of the political power away from the church. And it, it was in the Enlightenment that we uh, the concept of the separation of the church and the state, which is now very popular, came about. Atheism as a concept and as a belief system also came about during the Enlightenment, uh, although it wouldn't develop a larger following until later. The idea of believing that there was no God at all started to show up in the 18th century, and this question started to be asked. Now, as a result of the Enlightenment, there became this belief that if something... Um, uh, that if something couldn't rationally be proven that it was false. And I actually think this is a tricky philosophy because what this does is it limits us to using only a certain part of our brain. We are created with emotions, with feelings, with uh, a spirit um, or a soul or whatever it is that you want to call it as well as a rational portion of our brain. And so I think it's um, difficult whenever we say that we're going to focus all of uh, truth on one area of our brain to say that if something's rationally true then it's then it's true but if it's emotionally true that it's not and so just as I would discourage someone from making all of their decisions and basing all truth off of their emotions I'd also discourage you from basing everything off of your rational brain now that being said the enlightenment created this false dichotomy between faith and logic it said that if you believed in God that you were not logical and that's actually not true, and we're going to talk about why there are different areas of rational thought that prove that the existence of God is actually the most logical conclusion. So that's where we're going to be going tonight. Before we get started, I want to clarify just a few things. Number one, I am not a philosopher, and I'm sure am not a scientist. And so the things that I'm going to talk about today are things that I've researched, I've tried to understand them, I'm going to try and put them in the simplest terms possible for you, because if you're anything like me, it's very complex. But that being said, if you have questions and you want um, more information, you can come and talk to me after. If I can't answer your question, I would be happy to uh, point you to some resources that uh, really helped me in writing this message. The second thing is that I believe science and reason pair beautifully. And it is not my intention in this message to say that they are fighting against each other. John did a great job of talking about how they complement one another in his message last week. So if it seems like that's what I'm doing, then I apologize. That is absolutely not my intention. And third, if you are here and you don't believe in God or you have questions about the existence of God, what I want you to know is that you're welcome here. You belong here. And we believe that 
you should belong before you believe it. You don't need to agree with everything that we say on this stage in order to find a family and a community here. That being said, something that we do as a community is that we challenge preconceptions. We challenge ourselves to examine if something is actually true or not. And so I am going to challenge the viewpoint that God doesn't exist. But I'm doing that out of love, not hate. And my encouragement to you is to have an open mind and consider maybe I am wrong. And maybe the evidence that Zach provides tonight would open me up to what is actually true or what he is saying is true. And so those are my three clarifications slash uh, introduction things. And now let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to, opportunity to come together as a community of faith to explore difficult questions. We thank you for intellect, that you have created us with an intellect, with a logic and reason to help us understand the world, and that you are not beyond that, that you don't exist outside of reason, but that you are actually the logical conclusion for the beautiful, amazing things in our world. And so I pray for every person in this room, God, that you would speak to not just their hearts, but also their minds tonight. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to be looking at three different categories of evidence for why I believe and why many Christians believe that the existence of God is real and the most logical. And the first category that we are going to be looking at is science. The, now, like I said last week, John talked about science, so I'd really encourage you, again, I'm going to say it 15 million times in this message probably, go back, listen to John's message. He does, articulates this way better than me, and he goes into more depth. But the first area of science that we're going to be looking at is this idea of contingency. Now, contingency proposes that for something to, if something has begun to exist, something needs to have pre-existed it in order to cause it into existence. And as John mentioned last week, Scientists for a long time believed that the universe was eternal, that it had no beginning, and therefore did not need a cause for its existence. However, there is an area of science called thermodynamics, and the second law of thermodynamics offers some uh, evidence as to why this isn't possible, why the universe is not eternal. The second law of thermodynamics proposes that a closed system, meaning a system that does not receive any energy from outside of it, will eventually reach thermodynamic equilibrium, which means that it will eventually run out of en energy and cease to function. An example of this would be your phone. Your phone has a limited amount of battery power in it, and as you use your phone, that energy wears down, and eventually it runs out and your phone dies. So the scientists now understand that the universe is a closed system. It is not receiving energy from an outside source, and so will have an end, and for if it has an end, it therefore has a beginning, and so we can logically assume that something needed to cause it. The most agreed upon beginning is the Big Bang Theory, and if we understand that it logically follows that it began and that something needs to pre-exist it, what is that thing that pre-existed it? We know that this cause must be an uncaused, beginningless, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, being of enormous power. I would suggest that it makes the most sense logically and scientifically that that being is God. And Christianity has been proposing this since the very beginning. Now additionally, it's worth noting that while science, atheistic science does uh, um, believe that the universe began to exist, it has no strong uh, rationale for how it began. 
The most predominant theory is called the nothing hypothesis, which Pastor Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, says, economically describes as saying, the big, the big Bang Theory happened? Yes. What caused it? Nothing. But what, how did it happen? We don't know. So there's no, like, uh, assumed, they just say it just happened out of nowhere. Doesn't seem logical or very scientific to me. Now, further evidence that God caused the universe to come into existence is a principle in science called the anthropic principle. And the, the anthropic principle suggests that the universe is so fine-tuned that there is so much that needed to fall into place that the mathematical chances of the universe coming into being and existing in a way that could sustain and support life is almost miraculous. In fact, scholars suggest that if for all of the variables to line up, the chances of our universe coming to, into existence are one out of uh, 10 to the power of 138, which I had no concept of, so I obviously needed to see it written down. So this is what it is. So one out of that number is the chances of our universe coming into being. To put that into perspective, they believe, or they theorize that there, are, there have been 10 to the power of 70 seconds since the universe began. So there are almost double the number of chances for our universe to have not happened as there are seconds in the universe's history. Now to put the, <laughs> now to understand that the predominant options for how this all came to be are either that nothing caused it or that God caused it, I can't help but wonder if maybe the more rational and logical conclusion is that God caused it. And even further, see I love, I'm not a science guy, but I love reading about it because it's just, it's more and more and more. Even further, in order for the universe to be created, the laws that govern the universe had to pre-exist it. So the laws like the, law of ther the laws of thermodynamics, Newton's laws of motion, um, the law of gravity, all of those laws needed to pre-exist creation because they couldn't come into play at the same time. Otherwise, they, the very function of the universe being created and expanding couldn't have happened. So to put it more simply, the conditions for the universe creation had to pre-exist the creation of the universe which provides more evidence that a designer of laws existed before that creation happened. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins himself even admits, physics does not yet have its Darwin, meaning physics does not have an origin for the, law, the laws of physics. If this is the case, then I would assert that the theist, the one who believes in the existence of a god, has a more rational perspective than the atheist. In Genesis, the first book in the Bible, in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, it talks about the creation of the universe. And in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here, faith provides an answer for what science has not provided. And that we can see that not only does scripture assert that God created the universe, but it's actually reinforced by logic and science as well. So that's the evidence of science. We're going to move on to the evidence of morality. Now, the exist there are philosophers and theologians who have strong arguments for saying that the existence of morality gives us an indicator that there is the existence of God. That the very presence of morals in humanity points to the existence of God. Now, the first 
area of morality I want to talk about is moral relativism. And I want to define the three different areas so we understand them so that when we talk about them later, we know what we're talking about. So the first area of moral relativism is descriptive moral relativism, which basically proposes that um, different groups of people have different sets of morals, and that if, they were, if you took two of those groups, presented them with the same facts, they would have different moral, uh, uh, or they would have different moral responses to those facts. So you have the facts, this group and this group, and they disagree on what the moral is of those facts. The second area is meta-ethical moral relativism, which believes that you can't, there is no objective standard of right and wrong. So they would say that there is no such thing as good or bad, that it's uh, totally defined by the, the person or the community. And the third area of moral relativism is normative moral relativism, which takes meta-ethical relativism to the next level and says, not only is there no such thing as right or wrong, but we also can't, um, we can't define anything as right or wrong for other people. Now, the problem with normative moral relativism, the third one, is that it cannot suggest that something should be done in a certain way, i.e., everyone should tolerate others, because that is only one perspective, and so that therefore ends up refuting itself. In other words, normative relativism may find it difficult to make a statement like, we think it is moral to tolerate behavior, without then always having to add on, other people think intolerance of certain behaviors is moral. They can't define what is moral because they've said you can't define what is moral. Now, the problem with descriptive and meta-ethical re moral relativism is that they do not recognize that there are a great many moral standards that transcend culture that exist all around the world and have for a long time. And see, I, what I think is often the moral root is the same and it is merely the expression of that moral that differs. So, for an example, imagine that there are two people in a discussion. There's about a woman who has a, a, a pregnancy that could, be, that could cause her death. And one person proposes that the child should be aborted in order to save the woman's life. The other person proposes that the, uh, child, the pregnancy, sh pregnancy should be carried to term in order to um, to protect the child's life at the risk of the mother. Both share the same moral that human life is worth saving, but the, their approach to it and their expression of that moral is different. So the question is not, is human life valuable? The question is, which one is going to protect human life more? Simply put, moral relativism fails to allow for certain acts to be designated as right or wrong. If something that we would deem morally reprehensible, like mass murder happens, they can't say that it's wrong. The only thing they could argue is, we disagree with that, we don't like it. But they can't say that it's definitively wrong. Most of us would agree that that's not true, that there are certain things that are evil, that are wrong. And so if we can determine that morality exists across cultures, then the question becomes, who or what gave those morals to people? And scripture gives us a good example of this in Romans Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Romans is a letter that the Apostle Paul, an early Christian leader, he wrote to the church in Rome, and he writes this letter to them, and in his letter he says, for when Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. For universal moral law to exist, there needs to be a universal moral law giver. God has written morality and salvation on the human heart. And so even if we haven't, even if we haven't read what is right or wrong, we know in our hearts when we examine them what is and isn't right. And see, this is the thing that often people get hung up on. They believe that, like, how can Christians claim that they're the only ones that do good things? Christianity does not claim that. Christianity does not hold the monopoly on being a good person or doing good works. What it does do is it provides an explanation for the origin and the motivation for those good works. Now, the second area of morality that we are going to examine is the interaction of evolution and morality. Pure naturalists, meaning those who argue that everything that we are as humanity, including our conscience, is a result of evolution, argue that our morality is rooted in what was evolutionarily advantageous. That's a great word. Say, everyone say it together. Evolutionarily. Yeah. This idea is predicated on the idea of the survival of the fittest, that the fittest, strongest, members of humanity will survive and therefore shift the way that we are created in order for us to advance. The problem with this theory is that lots of our morality is not advantageous for our survival or for evolution. Consider this. You are walking home and you walk by the Red River. Maybe, I, I mean, I live near the Red River, so let's just say that. You're walking home and you notice that someone has fallen into the Red River. What's your response? Most people would either jump in to help the other person, or if you're an incapable swimmer like me, you would go and search for help. We would feel a moral obligation to help that person who's fallen into the river. And if we don't follow through to do that, we would either A, feel guilty, thereby revealing that we do have a moral standard and that we've simply failed it, or B, feel nothing and be called evil because we have no re moral response to the safety of another person. However, how can we explain that moral duty evolutionarily? There is an evolutionary disadvantage to helping the person in the river. It would make more sense to let them drown because they are less, they are less physically capable or even less mentally capable, the fact that they ended up in the river in the first place, and they will actually lower the standard of humanity by being able to reproduce. And if our morals are based uh, purely on evolutionary benefits, then it does not follow logically to help the person because you put yourself at risk of death and you give them the opportunity to bring humanity down. Now, you could argue that human beings began to recognize that they were stronger in numbers and so therefore developed people groups that cared for one another. But the problem with this is that these groups would still recognize the need to be strong as a group and to protect the strength of the group. We see this in, um, in herds of animals, right? That the sick or the weak get picked off and hurt um, and die sooner. They're more higher victims of, of attacks. Now, if we take this idea of morality as a result of nat natural selection to its end, it has devastating consequences. Charles Darwin, on whose work we base the idea of natural selection, wrote in The Origin of Species, man scans with scrupulous care the character and pedigree of his horses, cattle, and dogs before he matches them. But when he comes to his own marriage, he rarely or never takes any such care. 
both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are in any marked degree inferior in body or mind. Darwin would propose that if you, that we don't mate with people who have a physical or mental dis disability or deformity. So if you're looking for a special someone, Darwin would say, don't go for someone with glasses, someone in a wheelchair, someone who struggles with mental illness, has bone or muscle deficiencies, the list goes on, is barren and incapable of reproducing, all of those things. And if we take this logical, this logical um, thought process to its conclusion, we actually arrive at the horrible um, idea of eliminate, eliminating the lesser. Hitler himself wrote in his, um, what was it called, in his book, Mein Kampf, about the existence of lesser races and advocated for and later carried out their extermination. And pure naturalists do not have a strong argument for why this would be immoral. Most, almost universally, we would recognize that as horrific. And if you were appalled by sexism, racism, and the mistreatment of the poor and disabled, then you need to recognize that those moral positions are not natural. And if they're not natural, then it points us to believe that there must be a supernatural cause for those morals. And Christianity provides an answer to this question. It asserts that all humanity is valuable and that God has created all of humanity in his image and that each of them deserves life and life to the full. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, a little bit later, God, uh, Scripture describes the creation of man, and it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God has designed and created each of you with a plan and a purpose in his own image. And it's therefore the reason, that is therefore the reason why we want to protect people. So that's the evidence of mor morality. And the last area of evidence that we're going to look at is the evidence of desire. Now, if you are interested in this area and want more information than just what I talk about, I really encourage you to go and read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He approaches this topic, he talks about it in a really basic, straightforward way. It's really good. Um, and so I bored a lot of his uh, research, but I would encourage you to go check it out if you want more information. Now this argument is predicated on the idea that all natural, natural desires have some um, object, natural object to satisfy those desires. So for example, if you're hungry, there's food in, that you can eat. Or if you're thirsty, there's water, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. C.S. Lewis argues that within each of us, there is a desire for something greater, and he calls it joy, and he defines it as brief, intense, thrilling pangs or stabs of longing that are at once both intensely desirable and achingly painful. He says that within each of us, there is a longing for more, for something greater than the, what is around us, and we desire connection and freedom and a joy that cannot be satisfied by the world. Now this joy differs from other natural desires in two ways. The first is, other desires are only pleasurable if they are fulfilled soon. Joy, we discover, is pleasurable in the wanting, and that, when we, and that we realize that in the wanting, we find it that we have it. So he's proposing that this natural desire that we have, or this desire for joy that we have, is not only pleasurable when it's fulfilled when we die and go in heaven and, and walk into the fullness of God's glory, but that even on earth, as we pursue God, that desire is pleasurable, whereas natural desires like hunger reach a point where they're not desirable anymore if they're not satisfied. 
we've all been hangry. The second is that the fact that it is a strangely indefinite desire that apparently cannot be satisfied by any natural happiness attained by the world. Unlike hunger, where we know that if we're hungry, we need food, this is more indefinite, and many people seek to fulfill this desire with things like sex, food, relationships, etc. We fill this void with other things because we don't know what it is that we need. The presence of this desire can be seen across all of humanity. In art, literature, film, we see this desire pursued. In individual lives, we see it, again, with sex or with food or relationships or a cause, something that you believe in, that you fight for. All of these things are good, but they don't fulfill that desire. People feel the desperation of the desire and seek out many ways to fill it. So if we can recognize that it, this exists, we can deduce the following. No desire in humanity is created in vain. Which then leads us to understand that humans have a natural desire for joy that would be vain unless some object that is never fully given in our present mode of existence is obtainable by us in some future mode of existence. And therefore, the object of this otherwise vain natural desire must exist and be obtainable in some future mode of existence. The presence of this desire points us to the presence of the fulfillment of that desire somewhere else. More simply put, C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If we have a desire that cannot be satisfied by anything natural, then we must conclude that there is something that is supernatural that can satisfy it. You guys still there? You're still tracking with me? Still awake? Look at your neighbor and say, are you awake? One of Jesus' disciples was a man named John. And John wrote an account of Jesus' life. This we now call the book of John or the gospel of John. And it goes through the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 4, sorry, let me just turn there. In John chapter 4, we read a story about Jesus meeting a woman at a well. And this woman is a Samaritan. And Samarit Jesus was Jewish, and Samaritans were a group of people that Jewish people disliked. They did not like them. They did not interact with them. And so Jesus meets this woman at the well, and he asks her to get him a drink. Now, this woman would have been the antithesis of Jesus. Not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And in Jewish culture at the time, men would not talk to women in public. They wouldn't talk to women uh, who weren't their family members. And so this woman and, this, and Jesus should not be interacting, but they are. And she, she, um, she gives him a drink of water, and I want to read this story. It's start, starting in verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus describes a thirst that cannot be satisfied by physical sources. He talks about living water. And here he's describing his spirit. That when his spirit comes and lives within us, that living water, that well, bubbles up and boils over into the rest of our life. And that it's satisfying. And that when we eventually die and come into God's glory, that that, satis that desire is completely satisfied. This woman, who is desperately trying to find fulfillment, it says that later on it goes on to talk about how she had had five husbands and she was now with another man who was not her husband, but she was living with him. She's seeking after these relationships to satisfy that desire. She hears Jesus talk about this living water and she says, that's what I want. That's what I want. Because I've realized that this desire in my heart is not being satisfied by something natural. And I need something supernatural. And Jesus says, I have it. It's living water. As we've examined the evidence, I find it difficult to believe that there's a logical alternative to the existence of God. It is not a question of whether or not he exists, but of a, a question of whether or not I will choose to believe in him. Each of us must take the evidence presented to us and make a choice about what we are going to do with that evidence and what we will believe. I love how Josh shared in his story that he was driving on that road and he had to pull over and he said, I'm at the crossroads here. I have to make a choice. Am I in or am I out? In addition to the rational evidence that we have looked at tonight and, the, and way more that has been created by scholars and theologians, there is a knowledge deep within me that God exists that I've experienced the presence of God and that it's changed my life. That, that I've been in circumstances and situations where the explanation for the result of it is, cannot be natural and must be supernatural. Because, see, and then the beautiful thing about it all is that God doesn't merely exist, but that he's interested in you. See, because he could have just created the universe, shoved it off and been like, Good luck. But he didn't. He's intimately involved with his creation because he loves it, because it's very good. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and life to the full. He wants you to have an incredible life. God loves you and recognize that, and he sent his son to earth to live as a human to walk through all of the same things that we walk through and then died on a cross and rose again so that we could have access to that living water. That was the most incredible gift. That good grace that God extended to us, the good grace of a good God who loves each and every one of you. And I think it would just be incredible if all of us could stand right now and let's worship that good God who gave us that good grace.